Welcome to The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Ken Lawrence, and me, Paul Johnson, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. We unpack our identity as white men by having honest, open, and sometimes difficult and uncomfortable conversations about being a white man, where we come from, our place in today's society, and roles to play moving forward as allies, leaders, and individuals who care about creating an equitable society for all. Okay, Paul, here we are in our second installment of working through our identity process. We are in that critical first step of understanding the history that led us to our current racial ecosystem in the United States. Yeah, I mean, last episode, we covered a lot of ground. I mean, we discussed the origins of race and, of course, with that, the creation of the racial hierarchy, how that came over to the American continent during the founding of our country, and then the impact of that on the creation of our constitution and this institution of slavery. And of course, we talked about and and couldn't deny the fact that it was all white men in that room when we uh, founded our country. So I covered a lot of ground, excited to cover more ground in history. Let's continue this process of connecting our history to today, and we'll pick up right where we left off. You know, the Civil War is, of course, a defining event of our country. 620,000 American soldiers were killed. That is more than every other U.S. war combined. And the divisiveness that caused that had to be as powerful as possible. I mean, that divisiveness was also present when rebuilding the country after the Civil War. So let's go through the main events that led to the Civil War to best understand what that divisiveness was because it has ramifications that resonate today. All right, so as you said, where we left off is after the Constitutional Convention. We have this new country, everybody ratified after all of those compromises. And now the United States is expanding rapidly. So we are settling westward and with that, creating new territories and eventually new states. And I want to pause here, Paul, for a moment just to put a caveat in here. You know, there could be a whole podcast series on westward expansion the idea of manifest destiny, and the impact that it has had on indigenous people. And for the sake of this podcast, we are going to do a high-level lead-up to the Civil War and the main policies that led to the war, not doing that justice. The policies that are eventually created are focused heavily on free slaves and blacks, as we will discuss, but had an impact on all people of color, including indigenous people, Chinese in the West, Native Mexicans in the South. I just want to be sure to put that caveat in there that we are not going to discuss each one in depth. Okay, so we are expanding westward rapidly. And as you'll recall from our last episode, slavery and race tensions are already high between the different states, and it has become geographical. So as we get into the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution begins, and it happens in the North. So the North becomes a commercial and manufacturing economy. The Southern state's economy remains based in agriculture and farming, and with that relies heavily on the institution of slavery. As we are expanding westward and creating new territories and states, the question is, are the new states going to be free states or slaveholding states? So as we move through the 1800s, 
this debate over slavery is becoming more and more fierce. You're beginning to see staunch abolitionists, those who want to abolish slavery, and the efforts start to become more structured. So abolitionists, they included white men, such as William Lloyd Garrison, who was a really famous journalist at the time, and, and different congressmen and senators. But it also included black men and women, and many of whom had escaped slavery. The best example of that is Frederick Douglass, um, who is, in my opinion, one of the greatest Americans of all time, who escaped slavery and became one of the leading abolitionist voices. So as this abolitionist movement gained momentum, the friction between the two sides became increasingly intense. An example that always pops into my head, Paul, is in 1856, after giving a passionate anti-slavery speech, a senator from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, was beaten into unconsciousness with a cane by the pro-slavery South Carolina representative in the Senate chamber. So whenever people are like, it's never been more divisive than today or divisive than divisive or divisive. I, I don't know. that I think uh, both works. It okay. It's divisive. never been... Divisive sounds a little bit more, you know, refined. Yes. That's divisive. where we're going. That's all that we're going for here is, is refinement. So. Yes, exactly. Yes. We, ne- we, <laughs> we want to be as perfect yeah. as possible. Like I said last episode, thrival. Thrival. Like that. Yeah. yeah. We got to con- continue that. <laughs> yeah. Whenever anybody says, you know, it's so divisive today, I'm, I'm always like, okay, well, nobody's at least beating anybody to an unconsciousness in the Senate chamber. So as these new territories are being formed and applying for statehood, the northern states and abolitionists opposed the expansion of the institution of slavery. And the South thought it was constitutional for states to decide for themselves. So we have a series of compromises, once again, that aim to keep the peace between the two sides. So the first one we'll mention briefly is called the Missouri Compromise in 1820. It admitted this new state, Missouri, as a slave state, but the compromise is that they broke up Massachusetts and made Maine a free state. And a part of that was that with the exception of Missouri, slavery would be banned from anything north of the imaginary line which ran along Missouri's southern border. So that didn't make everyone happy, but it kept the peace for the time being. Then the Mexican War happens from 1846 to 1848. This is another event that has had huge consequences that I feel like is pretty overlooked. So this is straight up Manifest Destiny. Quickly, the idea of Manifest Destiny is that the United States had destiny, like a divine destiny, to spread across the continent to the Pacific Ocean. So the president at the time, James K. Polk, tried to buy a bunch of Western land from Mexico, was rejected, So he simply instigated a fight and our military marched through Mexico. This war resulted in nearly all of present-day California, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, and New Mexico. Mexico lost about one-third of its territory in this war. So new territory, new states, new disputes over slavery. Time for another compromise. So the Compromise of 1850, this is a big one. It had a few different parts. It admitted California as a free state. It permitted slavery in Washington, D.C. It left Utah and New Mexico to decide for themselves. It defined a Texas-New Mexico boundary and made it easier for slave owners to recover runaway slaves under a revised Fugitive Slave Act. So you remember the Fugitive Slave Act way back in 1793 that we talked about last episode 
as part of the original Constitutional Convention. Well, this one was reinforced and went further to compel all citizens to assist in the capture of runaway slaves and denied enslaved people the right to a jury trial. Okay? So four years later, as tensions are mounting as the years go by, and yet another dispute over the Kansas Territory, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is made. So that split the territory into two new states, Kansas and Nebraska, and left both to decide the issue of slavery for themselves. An important part of this is that this repealed the Missouri Compromise, which gave an option for a slave state north of Missouri's southern border. So tensions were so high at this point between pro- and anti-slavery forces that in deciding their own status, there was an internal civil war that happened in Kansas. It was called Bleeding Kansas. And also, opposition to the act in the North led to the formation of a new party, the Republican Party. So a new political entity based on the principle of opposing slavery's extension into the Western territories. So all of this together, the violence, the growing abolitionist movement, and the creation of this new anti-slavery Republican Party convinced more and more Southerners that the North was bent on the destruction of slavery that sustained them and their economy. So the final straw was Abraham Lincoln's election in November of 1860. So Abraham Lincoln was with the Republican Party, and within three months of his election, seven southern states seceded from the Union, four more southern states joined after Fort Sumter, the Confederacy was born, thus the Civil War began. So when you're talking about compromises and disputes and tension, you're really talking about tension between white men, right? I mean, yeah. clearly there's there's unrest within other communities of people, but as far as like who is starting to go head to head, right? It's it's factions of white men, right? Those are the decision makers for sure. Yeah, I think the communities at this time, I mean, let's talk from 1820 maybe even earlier to the civil war starting in 1860 that's what everybody's talking about in every community so um white women white men uh people of color i mean they're all taught slaves obviously have no say in this but it's what everybody's talking about but it's the white men who are ending up making all of these decisions yeah and that's been the case throughout all of history right like yeah. the people in the room are white men and even if it is a slightly diverse, which it is a little bit more today, I know we talked about that last episode, mm-hmm. it's still not very diverse. It's still the power is maintained by white men for the most part. So when you talked about this like divisiveness or sorry, divisiveness yeah, <laughs> um, and, and tension between abolitionists and slaveholders, was it really about slavery? Was that really what, what the, especially abolitionists were about? Or is it really about power? In this case, I think you can link power to everything, but I would say it's about slavery. I mean, at the end of the day, the South's power, you could say, and economic livelihood came down to slavery. Mm -hmm. This whole struggle up until the Civil War is revolving around slavery. You have these abolitionists who are saying, you have a lot of them saying it's an immoral institution. Like our country cannot, even those who are, who are saying South, you can keep it. We cannot have new states be, be slave states. It's all about the slavery. But with that, it, it is all about the South's power. And from their point of view, if slavery has gone, they're individually losing that power. 
those at the top of society are never going to have the same type of livelihood that they could have. So I think it's power, but all of the debates are around slavery. You know, what interests me is that, you know, white men have been showing up throughout history to be anti-racist or anti-slavery. So it's not like there's never been white men showing up to say, like, this is wrong. Like, we are treating these other human beings wrong. And, you know, all of this build up to the Civil War clearly shows that there's almost like a, it's, of course, not that clean, but a 50-50 split, right? Mm -hmm. But today, I I don't know, today it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like a 50-50 split. I you know, you and I are obviously working to be anti-racist and we clearly see what's wrong right now, but mm. at least within white men, right? Like that identity, like I, I feel, and you probably feel too a little bit alone, right? Like yeah. where are all the other white men? Yes. Whereas like I'm I'm listening to you and thinking about that, like there was a war that was pretty even on both sides, right? So it doesn't feel even today, right? Like, mm. so I... I don't know. It'd be interesting to figure out like what happened over time or if that's just a, a false perception I have about what's what's happening today. Mm-hmm. But it feels like there was a little bit more of a people power back then, I guess. That's interesting because because it was the topic of the day. And yeah, it, it's almost like there's more focus on this issue back then because it was so visceral and there was an institution. Whereas racism today isn't so clearly Mm. defined for white people. Mm -hmm. It is for people of color who have to live through it every day. But if you're a white man, one of the reasons that I want to have these discussions, I want white men to have these discussions, is that you can go through life as a white man and you can hear about racism, but you you can go through without ever really digging into it and without ever really understanding it. So that's interesting because I think you're right. There were there was this big battle going on between white men, but it was like staunch anti-slavery as an institution. Once slavery ends, it becomes more abstract. It's not such a visible thing that you can easily say, "Hey, that's wrong." It's it, you have to do a little bit more work for it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, and especially when there's there's significant moments of change. Things like, of course, going back to the Civil Rights Act. I'm sure a lot of white men and white folks in general, are like, oh, good, it's it's all it's all good now. I don't, I can go back to my normal life and not think about it. And clearly, that wasn't the case. You know, more recently, Obama became president. Oh, yeah, okay, we're post-racial now. And yeah, it racism it changes and it and it transforms and it gets more subtle and surreptitious every day, right? So it's hard to see. But I almost feel like there's a like this may sound like really dramatic, but like. We're building up to a war because mm-hmm. you have like a lot of white men who are arming up and they're saying that it's about a tyrannical government. But there's also this, you know, history of white people protecting their property from black people. There's white people who want to keep black folks in their place. And and so it, it feels like there's a divisiveness that's happening today that's building up. And I, I hope it doesn't go to war, but it doesn't it feels like there is a very like it's a, we're in a very polarized society today. Yeah, and I think it a word that jumps to mind as you're saying that is disenfranchisement, where when people feel threatened or feel disenfranchised, they do have that kind of call to arms type of mentality where it's like we have to defend our livelihood. And I think that it was happening in the early 1800s with the South who knew that if slavery was gone, they were going to be more disenfranchised and they weren't going to have that power status. And I think you see that today 
where let's use a well-cited profession as an example of this is farming, where farming used to be such an important part of our economy and society. And it was very much like a connecting profession. And, and because of different advancements in technology and all these things, farming is still a great profession, but it doesn't have the same type of influence that it once did. There aren't a lot of people talking about farmers. There aren't a lot of people thinking about small farming towns. Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of people are starting to feel disenfranchised. And when you feel disenfranchised, you're going to feel, you feel threatened Mm -hmm. and your livelihood is at stake. And I think there are parallels. You could almost probably make a parallel throughout history for any type of group. You know, people of color have been disenfranchised through various means, of course, starting with slavery, where you had no privilege or power of any sort. As we continue through our process and go through history, there are policies that continue to disenfranchise people of color. And you have that same kind of reaction, like, I need to fight for this. I need to do something. And you have, you know, in the South, we're going to cover Reconstruction after the Civil War, the 1960s Civil Rights Movement. And I think currently today, it's it's like the 1960s where you can only be disenfranchised for so long. And it's that's where divisiveness or divisiveness comes from, I, I think. And, and it's just when people are starting to feel threatened. Yeah, because... I, I really believe that all white people have this collective fear of people of color, especially African-Americans, starting to gain power, mm-hmm. right? Cause, and it goes all the way back to even just like the fear of when slavery was a thing and like this fear of like they're going to figure it out at some point, like that this is wrong and they're going to band together and they're going to fight back, and right? You know what's interesting with that to jump in is – one of the reasons that, so we talked about the racial hierarchy to satisfy the moral obligations of slavery. But another reason that they made it about race is that people saw if black slaves and the white poor band together, they would take down the elite class. And so to create a divisiveness or divisiveness between those two groups, mm-hmm. so then all of a sudden you, you bring this race in and then you give a reason for poor whites to feel a, a separation between blacks, where if if you took skin color and race out of it, the lower socioeconomic class would be extraordinarily powerful. And so that's one of the reasons that they even separated that. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it all comes back to power. And when, you know, as white men, we've, we've had that power, it, there's a fear of losing it. And there's also a fear of like, what is it even like to not have it? You know, we, we want to hold on to it as tightly as possible. And I think regardless of what your ethics and morals are, what political spectrum are, like as a white male, like I think that's ingrained in us, right? Like we, we are used to power, we're accustomed to it. We, we grew up being sort of like put on that pedestal as like we, we embody that. And so we, we really haven't like experienced what it's like to be powerless. And so I think there is this like internal fear at all times of like, what is it like to give up power? And, you know, that's also very much a white supremacy thing. Like power hoarding is a characteristic of white supremacy, right? And it's this limiting belief that I think we have that power actually is limited, right? And we think it it's meant to be for the few, right? We look at organizations and it's it's a pyramid, right? So the, the power is concentrated at the top, right? And then there's a little bit of power sprinkled out. But that that's that's a that's a fallacy. I think that's like not true. I think power can be distributed pretty evenly, but historically we've had it where power is concentrated at the top and people in the power want to hoard it and hang on to it 
because they worry about the chaos that would ensue if power would be distributed, but they don't realize that actually chaos ensues when it's hoarded. And, you know, along the lines, too, with trying to maintain power for everybody, we talked a lot in the first episode about all these compromises that were made to have states ratify the Constitution to become a country. And you had, for example, the the three-fifths compromise, Mm -hmm. where they count as three-fifths a person for representation. And here you just have more and more of these compromises. And when I was reading up on this stuff again and, and gathering thoughts, just the more I think about that, the more arbitrary everything <laughs> seems. And it's just, you know, for states, for example, you know, we just, there was a room full of guys who carved up states and where they would be and where the borders would be. Would they be free or would they be slaveholding states? And it had monumental consequences on individual lives, slaves, number one, and then all of these people who were fighting for abolitionists. It led to the bloodiest war in American history. And it just seems so arbitrary. I just had a moment where I was like, it just seems so arbitrary. It's just so constructed. You know, there's nothing that says all of this is carved in some kind of like perpetual stone that can never be changed or looked at where i had this light bulb is where it's like if we just see it that way that can help us to see that we can change anything you know and and now we can change it in a way where it's not all these guys in a room you know having one race and one gender having the input from them but having more voices at the table we can change anything because anything has been just constructed yeah and i think that speaks to i think we mentioned it last episode around you know, we romanticize the founding fathers and like look at them as like whatever decisions they made were right and perfect for the country. You know, you keep mentioning compromises. Well, they're not compromises at all because there are many people whose voices were not at the table saying like, I don't agree to this, yeah. right? Like there is my voice is not included on, in this compromise. So it, how can it be a compromise when it's really between a limited amount of people, right. you know, and you're excluding the voices of other folks? Yeah, and again, it's all about it's all about the decisions being need need to be made by white men, and you know I I feel that sort of insecurity myself if if I am not at the table, right? Mm-hmm. I felt that in in my work and personal life, like my voice is not there, even heard. Like I feel uncomfortable if I go through a whole meeting and not say a word, and that probably never happens, right? Because right. I I at least for me, I think it's instinctual to be like, well at least I got to say something here or I I feel entitled to say something Mm -hmm. when in fact, like I should really be most of the time just sitting back and listening. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I think is important for a lot of things that are going on currently is the reason that the civil war happened was because of slavery and because of the way history has been written and who has been writing history there's this argument that the civil war happened because it was just different ideology between two different cultures the south and the north and different economies and different ways of living and it it wasn't so much about slavery slavery was a part of that but any historian you know i follow and my own personal takeaways which take with a grain of salt but is that it was completely about slavery the civil war was about slavery and the South had that power and did not want to lose it. You know, there's this current huge debate over the Confederate symbol and over what that means. And it's, a his- it's just this historical, iconic thing. 
but it it represents slavery that was existing because they wanted to keep the institution of slavery and i think it's really important to recognize that and to know what that means and why somebody a black person for example would see that and think that it's not okay to have that yeah i mean forgive me for my like a little bit of skepticism around you know was it about slavery i'm sure it was i think there was probably other dynamics too of just maybe there's a like a moral righteousness from the north or because i mean again like remember like last episode you said the north wanted to count african-americans as one-fifth a person right yeah. like i don't know <laughs> like i if it, it seems a little bit like a of a um of a contradiction right like you you say you're anti-slavery which you know you could assume that means oh well you're you're anti-racist right but then you want to count an african-american as one-fifth human and that's very racist right so and again you know humans are are dynamic and messy it's not perfect but i wonder if you know it's it's my own like internal skepticism of white the intentions of white men right to like yeah, they, they say they're going to start a war on slavery, but was that just a way to like kind of slap a label on it and say, but it's really about we want to get, we want to show up the South or like get control over the South. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of like talking out loud, but like yeah. I'm just wondering if there's ulterior motives, you know, something buried underneath. Yeah. You know, I think probably for a lot of these guys, like we talked about last episode, the North was far from perfect. There were no slaves in the North. Why weren't they granted full citizenship and could serve in Congress and the Senate? Like that didn't exist in the North either. So the North was not even close to an equitable world. Mm -hmm. Where the Civil War becomes about slavery is the North said, you know, in general, and there were people in the North who didn't care that there was slavery, but the majority of the North said, you know, we do not want any more part of our quickly growing company, our quickly growing country to have slavery. I think that that came from moral grounds. It could have came from human beings to the PowerPoint and also just competitiveness of like the North. We want to be better than the South and our way of life is better. And we want manufacturing to grow instead of more agricultural economy. There's probably a lot of that. But it came down to the North was saying, like, mm. no to slavery. Mm. And the South said, we have to let states decide. And they felt so threatened that slavery was going to end that the, the South left. And the South left to uphold the institution. And the, the North said, we're not letting you secede from the country. So we're going to fight this war. You know, it became mm. less of like the North attacking the South to abolish slavery. Yeah, and I'm sure it's it's both and, yeah. right? Like there's some folks who are, you know, motivated by money or power and some were like literally were like this is a moral wrong. I you know, the example that came comes to mind is like a, a white male CEO of a company today and deciding to create an anti-racist statement for the company and bring in a DEI chief equity director and bring in like DEI practitioners. And they're outwardly like, oh, we're doing this because we care and we want to create equity. But really in in the boardrooms, talk, they're talking about how much they can move the bottom line by doing these things. Like, oh, it looks good publicly. You know, there's re- you can look up research that says, like, if you have more diverse teams, a, a company's more profitable. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that's kind of what I'm getting to. Like, I'm wondering about the motives, yeah. like the underlying motives there. Is it really about a moral wrong or, or an ethical decision? Or is it really about like, oh, there's actually some economic ac- opportunity here with this, oh, you yeah. know? But yeah, like 
like I said, it's probably both and. There's yeah. there's people in both camps. I think um, you're right. Yeah. And I want to give credit to the abolitionists of the past who, like this guy, this Charles Sumner from Massachusetts, who gave this fierce anti-slavery speech. There were guys who were saying slavery is an abomination, that you have human beings in bondage, all races are created equal. That existed at this time. And I want to give those guys credit because they were obviously way ahead of the times. Thaddeus Stevens is another example of a guy who was just gave these fiery speeches about like everybody was created equal under God. And, and you know, our country is immoral and will be immoral forever if we have this institution. So I think you're right. It's both and. But we would not have had a civil war had slavery not been the underlying issue. But, I, you know, again, you're right. Like the North wasn't there weren't CEOs with, you know, of companies with black people at the time in the North, there weren't representatives of black people in the North. They weren't granted full citizenship. They couldn't vote in the North. So, I mean, it wasn't this holy land of equality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I got to give credit to, to Charles Sumner though, because probably canes back then were probably made of like balsa wood. <laughs> yeah. So like it probably took like two to three hours to beat him unconscious. Like he really took a beating. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that, that dude, he, he was pure. I'll give him, I'll give him credit there. That's right. <laughs> uh, so the civil war lasts for four years. From 1861 to 1865. And we're not going to discuss the war in detail here. But there are two events we do want to highlight for our purposes during the war. The first is the Emancipation Proclamation. So we all know this. It was declared by Lincoln in September of 1862, ratified on January 1st, 1863. Why that's important is that it was in the middle of this really bloody civil war, like right in the middle. So as this war is raging on and many people thought the North was going to wipe out the South immediately because they had more resources and manufacturing, but it just made it clear in the first couple of years, this was going to be a bloody long affair. So Lincoln makes this emancipation proclamation during the war. And the other part is that he made this before his second election. So before he went up for reelection, which I feel like politicians wouldn't do today, but he was like, I'm going to, you know, I want this. And if people vote me in, that shows that the people want this still. And if not, then maybe they don't want it. So then Lincoln is reelected after making this proclamation. And in 1865, the end of the war is beginning to be in sight. On January 31st, that is when Congress passed the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery for good. So this was a genius piece of work by Lincoln. Remember, the slaveholding states had seceded from the Union, so they didn't vote on the amendment. The amendment barely passed as it was, and it obviously never would have passed had the seceded states been present. So now when the Civil War ended, in order to be admitted back into the Union, they had to re-ratify the Constitution, which included the 13th Amendment. Have you ever seen the movie Lincoln? With Daniel Day-Lewis. I have not. I love Daniel Day-Lewis. I watched uh, There Will Be Blood like twice in a row because I just, because of him. Like he's an incredible actor. He is. And he won Best Actor for Lincoln. This came out maybe in 2012, I think. And it is incredible. It The movie Lincoln is all about passing the 13th Amendment, which mm. is really good. And it shows like how difficult it was to abolish slavery for good. Mm. So that happened at the end of January, 1865. Move up to April 9th, 1865, Robert E. Lee's army of Northern Virginia surrendered to the Union General Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. 
effectively ending the war. You know, there were still a few Confederate armies that had to surrender, the last being in Texas. Once Lee surrendered, that is essentially the end of the war. Only six days later, Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. So on April 15th, 1865. So at this critical juncture in what is to be the toughest and most consequential transition in our country's history in ending the Civil War and bringing this extremely divided country back together as one, the greatest leader we have ever had is assassinated. I am an incredible Lincoln. He's my favorite historic figure ever. And it's hard to play what ifs with history. You don't like really want to do it, but it's interesting to do so. That's my number one what if. Hmm. Is what if Abraham Lincoln was not assassinated? Because as our country hmm. is being reformed in the post-slavery world for the first time, in steps Andrew Johnson, a Democrat. Remember, Lincoln is a Republican. So in this back in the day, you never would do, obviously. But on his ticket was a Democrat hmm. from Tennessee. They only put him on the ticket for to reunite the country. He steps in as a Southern sympathizer, and I'll save my feelings for Andrew Johnson uh, for next time when we start talking about Reconstruction. But essentially, our nation is reborn. Instead of having Lincoln leading us through this, we are having Andrew Johnson lead us through this extremely difficult transition. So you and I have traced the impact of race and slavery from pre-Revolutionary War to its eventual abolishment after the Civil War. And it is so consequential that only the bloodiest war in American history could get rid of it. You know, that's the only reason that slavery was going to ever leave this country. One of the founding fathers, I want to say it was John Adams. I could be wrong. Said our country will never get rid of slavery without a war. So this was foreseen as such an institutional part of our country. So now we have to rebuild. And with that, it's not as if the end of the Civil War ended this divisiveness you know, staunch pro-slavery and believers in the racial hierarchy that we discussed, it still existed. And now they're being told the slaves are free and we are going to integrate them into society. Well, they simply did not accept that. They continued to fight against that. And next episode, we're going to start talking about the Reconstruction period, or as I refer to it as the greatest utter failure the United States has ever had of creating this new post-slavery world. You know, when I hear the 13th Amendment, I immediately think about the documentary. You know, it, it would be interesting to watch, maybe I'll do this, to watch Lincoln and then right after that watch the 13th Amendment because, you know, think about what ifs. Like, what if Lincoln were to alive today to see that documentary and be like, this is not, this is not what I intended. Like, yeah, because, you know, if you're not familiar with the 13th, the, the documentary 13th, it's all about how slavery is still exists today, but in, in, in forms in which it's quote unquote legal and, you know, it's harder to, to see. Right. But slavery very much, you know, the, the idea of slave labor and essentially imprisoning black folks and keeping them down is still still exists. So. Yeah, it would be, I like that what if, like what if he were alive today, sit him down, give him a beer and like Man. sit him down, watch this documentary. Like, I wonder how he'd respond. You know, he was just a true leader with his words, with his actions, the way he led. He was very much like a servant leader. And in the earlier 1800s, he wasn't a staunch abolitionist, but he moved more towards or he was always morally against the institution, but he moved more and more towards abolishing it 
And then he got to a point where it became a moral thing for him and he want and he just had to get rid of it. And he was one of the only people at the time that could have gotten it done, I think. Mm. And it's so sad that he was assassinated. I mean, that's you think about the power of slavery and how much pro-slavery people, they left the United States of America to create their own country. And then they have this guy who gets rid of it. They have no choice. They have to, they lost the war. They have to get back into the country. They have to ratify the country. So somebody assassinates this guy, which isn't that surprising thinking about how visceral the hatred was. And it is just the saddest thing because we could have had, you know, the greatest the greatest president. We needed the greatest president of all time to get us through the Civil War, to keep our union together, and to get us through Reconstruction. And we at least got one of the two. I mean, if we had a different leader in the Civil War, we could be two countries today. There are a lot of people who are like, whatever, South. Let's mm-hmm. talk peace. You can do your own thing. Let's just talk about like trade and all that kind of stuff so we can still remain close. It, it's sad. I really wish that he he would have done an amazing job, I think, you know, uh, from what we've seen to bring our country back together. And instead, it fell into the hands of somebody utterly incompetent and a southern sympathizer Wait, i thought you were saving your feelings for next episode <laughs> it's so hard for me that my friends who uh a couple of them we talk history a lot they give me crap about andrew johnson all the time because i will just go off on andrew johnson i'll just go off on he was just he was a southern wannabe who was never quite accepted by the south and he just wanted to bring that back the union so quickly and he really didn't care about slaves at all and it was just such a shame that was it was he super him. short? No. Oh, okay. I thought maybe. I feel like sometimes there's like this the short <laughs> link. complex thing yeah. around, you know. And we could get into that. Like, there's there's so much research around like how even just being a tall yeah like, gives you you know a, a, a leg up, but literally and figuratively. Yes. So you, you're you're as we've established the history buff. You know so much more about Lincoln. I don't know much about him. I hear, obviously, all the good things, but there's also critics of Lincoln. And they look at him and say, well, he didn't do this and he didn't do that. And you said it yourself, like, well, we don't know what he could have done, right? Like, And what he did do, although it wasn't perfect with with the, the abolition of slavery, because as we know, it didn't completely abolish it. The, the experience, it's not like, oh, now the experience for black folks in the country was great, right? It continued to be poor. But it's, it does show, like, it's unfair to, like, look at one human being and, and expect perfection and to do it all. And like you said, it could have been a lot worse. Like, what if Andrew Johnson, what if he was assassinated, like, four years earlier and Andrew Johnson took over back then, mm-hmm. right? Like, we could we could be in a place where there's actually a North United States and a South United States, right? Yeah. Like, that could certainly be true. But, I, yeah, I appreciate, like, last episode, we, we look at some of these... Not all of them, right? Like we talked about John Calhoun, like he's just a terrible person, mm-hmm. like, like period. But for some of the founding fathers and the people, the white men who shaped this country, it's 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 important to give them like a, a fair look, mm-hmm. right? Like again, no one's perfect, and we got to think about the context of the time. But they did a lot of great things, and it's it's interesting here, you know, like how difficult it was, like what Lincoln had to go through, the fact that you know what's his name got beaten by a cane, you know, like mm-hmm. there were there were white men who were really taken shots and that that makes me believe that it really was a moral thing because they if it was if it was about money or power they wouldn't want to get beat up for it right Mm -hmm. like it it made it it gives me hope that like there's something inside of white men that like that's it's there and like you and i are trying to i think 
bring that out and like make that like the ideal identity for us to to develop um so yeah it, it gives me hope to hear that um about how hard he worked and how you know again not perfect but but did a lot of great things oh yeah and i i guess i'm wondering what you mean by slavery wasn't totally abolished well yeah i guess maybe you can enlighten me on that i i heard something about how there were like it was just in the the 13 colonies where it was bought there were like mm-hmm. parts of the country where it wasn't completely abolished and then like i said like there were there were other forms of slavery that were established right like it wasn't share you know, bondage right yeah. And, yeah but like you, you know there was there was mass incarceration and then they put them to work right and mm-hmm. so it's like well that's basically slavery mm-hmm. yeah so i mean i think it was i mean especially on paper like it was complete abolishment but mm-hmm. some people took it in their own hands to like well we're gonna sort of like quietly behind the scenes continue slavery right yeah. and again yeah. it's not like Lincoln could have seen all that happening, right, yeah. or prevented. But for sure, and when the Thirteenth Amendment passed, every state had to ratify it or a certain amount. Mm. So at the end of eighteen sixty-five, it was ratified, and it was law throughout the land. So every state had to adhere mm. to it. I don't know if you're thinking about like Juneteenth. You know, Juneteenth is celebrated mm. as when slavery officially ended. And it's when the last general went into Texas, Union general went into Texas mm. later in 1865 and said, you know, all slaves have to be free. It was kind of mm. like the last stronghold. But as far as Lincoln goes, I mean, so there's, it's almost two separate things. So Lincoln did, I would argue, everything he could. He mm. abolished slavery, made it illegal. The institution is gone. He then was preparing to work through reconstruction how are we going to integrate black people into society knowing that the southern people were going to fight against it and then what was it six days five days after the end of the war uh six days later he's assassinated so the the part that you're talking about where slavery continued in different forms is 100 percent accurate but doesn't have to do with lincoln that right. was you can start that with Andrew Johnson. Again, That's I'm gonna go on. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm excited about, I don't know if excited is the right word, but no, you're excited. I is am it, excited. Yeah, come so, on, admit it. If it's talking about history, you're excited. <laughs> so what we're gonna start next episode is you're referring, I believe, to re- the Reconstruction period. If there was one thing in the history of the United States of America that I would want every United States citizen to fully understand it would be reconstruction. Reconstruction it essentially means we're reconstructing our country after the war, both physically, especially in the South where there was some torched earth type of Sherman going through Atlanta, burning it down. So both physically, industrially, but also what are we gonna do with 4 million freed slaves? Mm -hmm. So how can we integrate them to society? And we screwed that up so badly and eventually abandoned it Hmm. that led to the Jim Crow South, that led to this mass migration of people of color, black people up into the North. It led to then Northern policies going into play. The black people started having representation in the South, like right after the Civil War. They, They, once the 15th Amendment passed and they were able to vote, they were voting in black people in the Congress. There was a senator. There was, you know, in, in statewide policies. And the South, the white elite, the KKK came up. They fought them back. They started mass lynchings. They started killing. They started fearing. They started attacking polling places. I mean, 
reconstruction is why our racial disparities exist today. If at the end of slavery, who knows, let's say Lincoln had this, I mean, it was a daunting task, a superhuman task. Who was going to bring our country back together, integrate freed slaves? But it could have been done in a way where our world today would be a totally different place, be significantly better. And we just created these policies and screwed that up so bad that suppressed black people and kept them in new forms of slavery, Mm. mass incarceration, sharecropping, which we'll talk about next Mm. episode, which is essentially you're still doing slave work Mm. for essentially no money. Mm. I mean, it's it's incredible what, what happened. Yeah, I'm excited about that, too, because I think it, it's a great learning opportunity because, you know, I think you would agree we're, we're in after the lynching of George Floyd, like we're in a major turning point. Like finally, a lot of people woke up and were like, we need to do something. Yeah. So I, I feel like it's in a sort of like reconstruction part of our history or current history of like, OK, our current state of our country is messed up, so we need to redo it. But let's not screw it up again like we did yeah. with construction, right? So, like, what do we need to learn from? Like, what mistakes were made? What did they, what did whoever was in charge of it, what do they do? What do they not do? And how do we make sure we don't repeat those same mistakes? That's a great point. Looking at reconstruction and how we screwed that up, I think is really important. I haven't even really thought about that in the current futuristic type of way, yeah. which is what well, Paul of, brings to my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, think about even just like defunding the police, yeah. right? Like even something like that. Like people are calling for a, a reconstruction of our criminal justice system. Yeah. And, well, really everything, our healthcare system, our education, all of it, right? Like all the systems are messed up. Like we need to redo this. We need mm-hmm. to like dismantle, like, di- you know, dismantle is probably going to be like Merriam-Webster word of the year, right? Yeah. Like you hear dismantle all the time okay, let's dismantle, but what does it then look like to reconstruct? Yeah. Like, it's one thing to dismantle something, but it's another to, re- to redo it. And so, you know, how do we make sure we do it in a way that, that is equitable, right? Because we don't want to end up where, like, all the people making decisions are white men again, right? Yeah, and, totally. like, making decisions for people, yeah. right? And I know it's more diverse uh, than it was before, but I think we, we can't get comfortable with assuming that, like, oh, we're a little bit better off now, so... I think we're on the right trajectory. Like, I think we need to be really careful. Yeah. And the idea of dismantling institutions, dismantling the police, I think it goes to show how much people need this change or feeling that this needs to happen. Because yeah. nobody knows what that looks like yet. Right. And they're just saying, like, let's let's disband the Minneapolis Police Department, for example. But nobody knows what that looks like. It's just like there's this desire to mm. get something that's different, which is powerful. That's yeah, because like even back then, I was like, well, we know slavery is wrong. Like we know that. Just like today, we know there's something wrong with the criminal justice system, but we don't even know what the right thing looks like because we've never had it before. So we are like kind of creating something from scratch, which you know I think is great. It allows for a lot of creativity, a lot of like you know yeah, a lot of diverse voices at the table. It's kind of exciting to think about like yeah, let's create something new and better. But the process in which we go through that is really important. Like again, how do we do it? Who's there? Uh, what are the outcomes we're looking for? So yeah, I, I yeah, I'm excited to hear about how they did it, did reconstruction, yeah, and what we can learn from it. And going through this historical process, I think, shows that 
we've been creating stuff from scratch forever. True. All these compromises and people sitting sitting in a room and understanding this all shows that, hey, we can create systems again from scratch because that's what happened in the first place. A group of people sat in a room, and in this time, a group of white men sat in a room and they created these policies and they created these states and they created these laws and they created the police departments and they created all this stuff mm-hmm. and they did it from scratch and we can do that again today mm-hmm. and changing things isn't like again we're changing some kind of divine whatever like human beings have made this human beings are not perfect our ideas can always evolve and change and yeah and i hear all the time I mean, I I hear both sides of the story, but I hear a lot of people say, you know, white people, especially white men, really need to lead the charge with dismantling white supremacy because we're the ones who created it. Like, we know it intimately because we're the ones who developed it, right? So we need to be there. Like, we need to be in that work, but at the same time, we need to be careful about hoarding power, right? And and being the only decision makers. Yeah, and you and I don't know the answers to that either. And I think you and I are both trying to figure that out once we go through this history part of our racial identity process and we come to today, then you and I are going to unpack some of those yeah. questions, you know, because you hear two different things. I've heard white people need to lead the charge. Like you're saying, you guys created this system. You guys fixed this system <laughs> to make people of color do it and talk about it and lead the charge and fair. And then there's the other side that's like the opposite, yep. where it's give the platform to people of color. They have not had the platform ever and they need it. I think there are a lot of well-intentioned white people who don't know what to do. Yeah. And I would even say I'm in that camp still. I'm still trying to figure yeah. out what's the right place for me individually with my strengths and everything, but also how I identify as a white man. Mm-hmm. What is that role I'm supposed to play? Yeah, I think that's part of the, yeah, again, like you said, we don't know. Yeah. We're figuring out as we go, but I think it's important to talk about it and dig in and be kind of confronted and, and ask questions and listen too to other voices. So right. reconstruction next time? Yeah, reconstruction next time. Let's, so let's, post-Civil War, it's it's a meaty one. We're going to talk a lot about Andrew Johnson. Yes. Don't worry. <laughs> let's deconstruct reconstruction. I like that. All right, perfect. Thank you for listening to The Modern White Man. Please follow us on Twitter at The Modern White Man for updates on new episodes, and please feel free to shoot us a note with questions or thoughts for future episodes. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.